The U.S. Arab Radio Network is proud to offer the Ray Hanania Show with veteran journalist Ray Hanania, the U.S. correspondent for the Arab News newspaper. U.S. Arab Radio broadcast content Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. on WNZK AM 690 in Detroit, WDMV 700 in Washington, D.C., and simulcast through stations around the country. Programs will rerun from 5 till 6 p.m. Visit us on Facebook at U.S. Arab Radio. And we're also streaming live on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. Welcome to the Ray Hanania Radio Show. I am Ray Hanania, and it is Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. And this is Season 3, Episode 17. We are brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News, the voice of a changing region. Arab News is at ArabNews.com, an award-winning newspaper covering the Middle East with bureaus in Paris, London, Islamabad, Tokyo, and with coverage in the United States, where I am the U.S. Special Correspondent. Our radio show focuses on the Arab-American community and issues, and also Middle East coverage from a U.S. perspective. We have two guests on today's radio show. In segment one, we're going to speak with Matthew Jabber Stifler. He is the director of the Center for Arab Narratives, CAN, a new national research institute operated through ACCESS, the largest Arab American community nonprofit in the country. Matthew is also the research and content manager at the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, which records all the many events that have taken place in the Arab American community, including the growth of the restaurant, Middle East Arab restaurant industry. We're going to speak with him about that growth of the Middle East restaurant industry across America. In segment two, we will speak with Marissa Ziad, marketing director for Ziad Brothers Import, one of the nation's largest distributors of Middle Eastern and Mediterranean food items. Ziad will talk to us about the increasing popularity of Middle East Mediterranean foods among Americans and how Ziad became one of its main distributors in the United States since 1966 when it was founded. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we can speak with our guests on the rising popularity of Middle Eastern Mediterranean foods and restaurants in America. We'll be right back right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Get ready for an amazing experience at Ishtar Restaurant on 15 Mile Road in Sterling Heights. Enjoy excellent hospitality from owners Ali al-Baghdadi and Fatty Bonham serving the best in Mediterranean food. Try Chef Ali al-Baghdadi's famous shawarma, the best Iraqi grills and food, and the best Arabic and international dishes. Dine in our authentic atmosphere or take out. Call 586-698-2585 or check us out on Facebook. Ishtar Restaurant practices all CD guidelines and is open every day 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Have an amazing experience today at Ishtar Restaurant, 3625 15 Mile Road, Sterling Heights. Five-year-old Lila and her mom are on their way home from grandma's singing Lila's favorite song. 
A few blocks away, 25-year-old Dylan is visiting friends at a small party. He finishes off his last beer, Later, skater. gets in his truck, and starts for home. Mom and Lila turn onto Maple Street. So does Dylan. Every 50 minutes in the United States, someone dies in a crash involving a driver impaired by alcohol or drugs. If you're impaired and you know it, don't drive. Drive sober. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning. And welcome back to the radio show. Uh, really uh, excited because uh, this is one of my favorite topics. You know, being Middle Eastern, eating is like essential to being Arab and our culture and our Middle Eastern and Mediterranean culture. And I don't think there is a company that can talk about the foods we eat better than the company that I'm speaking with and their representative, Marissa Ziad, who is the marketing director at Ziad Brothers Importing, which is based in the Chicagoland area. Uh, Marissa, welcome to the program today. Thanks, Ray. Thanks for having me. You got a wonderful job. You know, you're dealing with <laughs> the most popular things in the Middle East, our food. It's something that yes. brings everybody together, and it all started a number of years ago. Give us a little, just uh, to introduce yourself to our audience, um, and I'm sure many of them know you, but for those that don't, uh, tell us, give us a little history of uh, Zied Brothers. Yeah, absolutely. So like Ray said, my name is Marissa Zied. I'm the marketing director here. I've been working with Zied for four years now. Um, this is, you know, my family. I, it's an honor to be working for my family's business. And um, it, it's really amazing. So back in the early 60s, 1966, we were established. Uh, we were one of the first pita bread bakeries and grocery stores of its kind in the south side of Chicago. So we were like 63rd in Ashland. And we were just a little bakery. It was called Syrian Bakery. And we were baking bread. Uh, my grandfather, Ahmed, and his brother, Ibrahim, they opened this store together and were bringing products from the Middle East. They would go over. They would find a couple of different things, fill up a container, send it to the U.S. And we had, that's where Ziad really the brand was born. Um, we were the only ones able to connect to our culture and to our people back then because we were the only ones offering the most authentic products available at that time. And of course, during that time, you know, there were so many immigrants coming into the country that there were not options. You didn't have the option of having a taste of your home, you know, where you're in the U.S. It just, there weren't that many options. So for us, even to this day, you know, there's one thing that holds with our brand and it really is the authenticity of the products and the flavors and the tastes that have remained consistent and true to what all of you know you are used to eating you know back home so we're proud to represent that we really did start off at a small bakery grew into a distribution company and then grew larger into the largest distribution company of Middle Eastern and Mediterranean foods. And now as we grow, we will be encompassing more companies like ours to make sure that we're covering different parts of that world. So we're going into Turkish food, we're going into North African, Eastern European, but mainly, of course, Middle Eastern and Mediterranean food. I, I remember when I was younger, my mother was so excited when your father, your grandfather, Mm -hmm. um, and I knew your whole family. I was a little kid. We'd go to the store, the Syrian bakery, and mm -hmm. it was the only place we could get Syrian bread. It was the only place where we could get McLuba ingredients. 
uh, yep. was the only place where we could get the other spices to, that we needed that my mom needed. Um, we could pick the grape leaves any place, but the yeah. ingredients that went in there to make the grape leaf, we had to go to your store. And over the years from that one store, it's just the growth has been amazing. Now, before we get into like the current, you know, um, expansion of the popularity of Mediterranean food, what was the main interest before? Do you know, like in the early years, uh, it was just uh, another choice for people, right? Um, it was a choice, but I think that ethnic foods, you know, they've always been a, an interest to consumers. Um, I think we were we really introduced that Mediterranean cuisine and that Mediterranean category in grocery stores. You know, as you guys know, I'm sure a lot of the grocery stores you go to, you have your ethnic aisle or you don't, you know, or you have your ethnic grocery stores where you can find anything of, of our products. We really have grown and we are the Mediterranean category in these grocery stores. So, I mean, just the expansion of the products that we offered before to where we are now is a full range of ingredients that has grown, right? It's grown as we've learned our consumers. It's grown as the cuisine has grown. Um, and also, we're able to grow those products and to be more available into more grocery stores for you as well. You I don't have to just, yeah, you don't have to just go to one store, you know, to get something. You really, we really made it, we made it available to everybody and, you know, everywhere. I was going to say it used to be that we'd have to go to a Middle Eastern store, ethnic store to yeah. buy these products. But today that's completely different, isn't it? You can go almost any place. How has that changed? Um, we, I mean, the increase of I mean, for us, the increase, I don't have an exact number on me, but I do know that um, we have seen an increase. I think they said like seven to eight percent annually outpacing like dry grocery store is where like the Middle wow. Eastern Mediterranean category sits. And I really do think that COVID did have some something to do with it. I think that a lot of consumers were being a lot more adventurous with different cuisines. And of course, during that time, we were pushed to have to cook at home and try new things. But I think even people discovering the Mediterranean diet over the last couple of years has really grown our food category as well, because the Mediterranean diet is, you know, one of the healthiest and most popular diets, you know, in ways of eating that a lot of people really follow. So all of the ingredients, all the products that you need, for that kind of cooking, that kind of eating, you know, that's us. And grocery stores are recognizing that. They're recognizing the need for different ethnic products and just a larger variety. They're really seeing their consumers, which before they were really, you know, focused on what the one consumer wanted, you know, the, the majority or the mainstream products, but they're seeing that if they provide more of an ethnic product, they are really, you know, they're showing their ethnic consumers that, hey, we can cater to you and get you what you need as well. And they're seeing the results. So, And, and tell us a little bit about, if you don't mind, uh, you might be the expert on it, then the Mediterranean diet. I've heard of it. I think I understand it. But <laughs> for those people who don't know it and who are looking for a healthy way to eat, what is the Mediterranean diet and why is it so healthy? So the Mediterranean diet, it really does come from the Mediterranean, right? And I feel like any kind of diet like that is 
um, really influenced by the geographical location of where it came from. The Mediterranean is high protein, legumes, really healthy fats, olive oils, things like that. So it's a very clean diet, but also has substance. So high protein, lots of legumes, whatever greens were available and things like that. I'm not an expert on it, but I do know what it encompasses. I do know where it stems from. And it's something that I just naturally have followed my whole life, of course, of how we grew up eating. But even now, it's it's really the majority of my of my diet, personally. And tell us a little bit about the products that when we talk about your catalog, give us a little sure. overview of the different variety of things. I, you know, back in the 60s, it was Syrian bread, uh, garbanzo <laughs> beans, tahini, you know, and well, olive oil. And it's grown since then, I assume. It is grown. I mean, we probably started off with, you know, 20 products. Now we're going into over 900, close to, a you know, a thousand wow. different ingredients and products underneath, you know, between Ziad and some of the other brands that we distribute as well. But the main ingredients for us is you have lentils, red lentils, green lentils, chickpeas are a huge one as well. Um, you have, let's see. What other ones do I have? Well, dried chickpeas and you have the canned chickpeas. We have hummus. We have tahini, which is a huge protein source as well. And tahini, as we all know, is a number one ingredient within Mediterranean and Middle Eastern cooking as well. And I think it's the most popular too. Like if anyone's going to be thinking about Middle Eastern food and Mediterranean, it's tahini, it's hummus, it's baba ganoush. It's things like that that are familiar, but also that speaks to our, you know, those are staples in our cuisine as well. So and hummus obviously is a cornerstone <laughs> of the Middle Eastern diet <laughs> and the popularity. I mean, I think that yes. if you talk about what was the besides the Syrian bread, hummus was like a driving force, followed by falafel. Yeah. Tell can yeah. you've been a major player in uh, bringing hummus to the American people. Tell us what that what was that all about? <laughs> Um, honestly, Ziad has had the number one shelf stable hummus since, I mean, I can't even tell you how long we've had it. Um, it's interesting because hummus has always been a number one product, but you really never saw it as often until you started seeing it available in fresh food, right? With Sabra, with that fresh cold hummus. And as a consumer in our heads, it clicks like, oh, this must be fresh. This must be amazing, right? And it's, of course, and it's an introductory item. You see it, you grab it. Uh, for us, we've had the number one canned hummus, like I said, but it's so simple. The only ingredients in it are literally chickpeas, tahini, and citric acid. And it, it is an amazing product. I mean, to this day, you can find our hummus in a can on the shelf and you would not be disappointed. And, and honestly, and it, that item alone has grown, not even in, of course, in like, you know, in food business, but in restaurants as well. I think they're saying it's like the number three item behind chips, salsa and guacamole on the menu that you're going to be seeing hummus in almost every menu. So I don't think I can go to a restaurant without seeing yeah. <laughs> a hummus option today, which to me is yeah. amazing because growing up in the 60s, it was impossible to find other than in your mother's home or your aunt's home or yeah. a cousin's home. <laughs> Um, but today yeah. it's such a healthy option. Um, yeah. And you pointed out something I think that was very uh, important. You know, you didn't have to keep it in the deli section. Uh, shelf stable yeah. for those people that are listening, yes. may not be familiar with the food uh, 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 industry. Shelf stable mm -hmm. means it doesn't have to be refrigerated until it's opened. 
correct? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to have like such a simple ingredient product like that available at all times and also just a ready to eat product, you know, Ziad brand, you know, we, we're an ingredient based product line. So anything that you need to make that from scratch, we offer, but it's really great that we have a range of some of those products that are literally open the can, eat and go. And hummus is one of that was one of those baba ganoushes as well. Yeah. And also at, at one point, I remember you had stuffed grape leaves in a can. Oh, we still you've been do. very innovative. Yeah. You've been you've been very innovative with yes. different food and how you present it, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've tried, we definitely have tried to. We tried to keep up. You know, there's there's so many different innovations of food now too, but I think, you know, we're very true to the brand. We're very true to the authentic part of it, especially with the flavors and how it should be served and eaten that, you know, that's where, that's where we stand and we'll continue to. From, from the business side, talk a little bit about the, you know, how big of a market, I mean, is there a way to compare the Mediterranean market in terms of other market food markets in the United States? I mean, are you like a small percentage still? I mean, which 10% is big, but you know, what is, is what do we represent? What do you think Middle Eastern <laughs> food represents? You know what? I wish that we, I wish I had that number. I do know that we are, I think, 7% higher in like jumping, like we're 7% increasing over other brands into the mainstream market and categories into the mainstream market. So we are growing exponentially in that category. When it comes to the percentage of what we have in the market share, um, good question. Of course, I'm going to say a lot. <laughs> I want to say, you know, I want to say 12%, but that's just, you know, a number that I, you know, in my head, but um, I do know that we own a, the, and Zian brand within that category of the grocery store, we own probably 90% of it for sure. Of the different food options, the Mediterranean oh, yeah, food Yeah, options. yeah, yeah. 90% of that category alone, we we offer those goods. And that is between Ziad brands, you know, Ziad owned brands and other brands that we exclusively distribute and import as well. Yeah. And there are, do you, how many brands are there? Do you know off, off the top of your head? There's you gotta be a lot. Portfolio, our portfolio is huge. I don't have the exact number, but definitely over 20 different brands that we exclusively distribute on top of ours. Um, ones I'm sure you guys heard of Vimto, Bavaria, Barbican, Regal Pecan, Zelatimo, and the list right. the list goes on. I think a lot of your favorite ethnic, you know, items that you see in the grocery store, the majority of it does come from us. So it doesn't always say Ziad, but the brand may actually be a Ziad brand behind it. Yeah, it'll be yeah, it'll be us as a distributor. Ziad brand, you guys know Ziad branded products, but um, yeah, who we distribute. Some of them do say who it's distributed by, but most of the time, if it's coming from you know different country in the Middle East or something like that, we don't have we don't have our name on that on those. And, and earlier, you talked about the popularity of the uh, Middle Eastern and Mediterranean foods in the U.S. That it's a one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing food genre in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the category is really taking over. And again, like that correlates to the Mediterranean diet and just like a lot of different um, trends that you see in food has to do with Mediterranean food and Middle Eastern food is the base of that. And not a lot of foods can claim that Mediterranean diet, can they? 
they can't no not at all and i mean you're gonna be seeing like i and you even saw before you're gonna be seeing you know sumac and zatar and things like that in the restaurant chains that you would have never envisioned seeing it before even like harissa wings at wing stop like things like that it's just it's growing the flavors are growing people are interested in the flavors and it's going to continue to grow because we know how good our food is <laughs> so yes, once you start eating it, once you try it you know you can't you can't go back <laughs> Can you give us a sense of what, if you had to pick like the top 10 products or the top five, what do you think would be the the biggest sellers in your array of food products? Well, I definitely know what they are. Um, they're going to be tahini, ghee, red lentils, green lentils, falafel mix. You've got chickpeas. Um, you've got stuff like the orange blossom water, rose water. Uh, we do really well in our lebne and our yogurts as well. So those are definitely our top portfolio items. Which means that the American public obviously has come to recognize a lot of those things as basic staples for their own uh, kitchen, Absolutely. home, and diet. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and those uh, are... Yeah, those are the top products that we tend to showcase to mainstream as well. Like if they're looking to introduce a mainstream category, we really start with those staples, those essentials, uh, because they're really they're used so often. Uh, it's an, and they're great introductory products as well if you're looking to explore into the Middle Eastern Mediterranean food. And uh, I know that one of the things that you offer at Ziad Brothers is this uh, recipe option where people who want to find out how do I use tahini. Uh, yes. Even what is tahini? They can go to your website, find out what it is and find a way to use it. Yeah, absolutely. So we have some great recipes on our website. Um, you know, we are in the day of social media. So our Instagram page, um, our the handles at Ziad brand, we really use that platform to showcase our products and how to use them authentically, um, different recipe ideas, different things. It is translated onto the website, but that page really gives you just tips of what the product is, simple little uses if you are looking to explore, just inspiration in general. We have really, really amazing content on there and we're very, we keep it up to date. It's a very current you know, current content, but it's really, it's a really great inspiration page if you're looking to get into Middle Eastern Mediterranean cooking and just to learn more about it. So driving factors, Mediterranean yeah. diet, the desire to lose weight, always on my mind. I'm constantly <laughs> in that war. Um, COVID, you pointed out, yeah. gave a boost because yeah, people didn't go out to eat. And after a while it got boring. So they would yeah. experiment with foods. And I think that Mediterranean foods um, really offered one of the first options to try something easy to make and easy to get, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do think too. I think another trend that I'm really seeing is that a lot of um, a lot of different parts of our community are becoming much more loud and proud of where they come from, where their food comes from, who they are. Um, we really represent our culture so well with our flavors of food. But even in this time now, it's like we're proud to say we're Middle Eastern. We're proud to say we're Palestinian. We're proud to say we're Iraqi. We're Syrian. We're Egyptian. Like it's just something that is more is just so proud and especially with social media. So for us, like we have really been seeing even our community 
you know, using the cuisine as a platform to educate, to inspire, to, you know, all of those different things are just so important. But really in the last couple, I would say five, six years, you have seen such an increase in that kind of content and news. And Ziad is definitely, you know, leading those products. And it's it's great to be a part of that. And it's great to represent and be able to represent that for our people. It really is. And one of the most popular things, I think, are uh, the dates. They're so critical to the Arab community, um, not just the Muslim community, but even the Christian community. Yeah. Med- medjugul dates, I believe, is what is what they call them. And yeah, uh, you're one of the big suppliers of it, uh, an Arab-owned company, an Arab you know, family. Um, this uh, date is so popular. It's such a popular date and it's uh, such a cool company to be a part of. And again, to have like representation, especially, you know, for our Palestinians and for Palestine, we are a Palestinian owned company. We grow Palestinian dates. We have their non-conflict dates. They come with a certificate that show where they are grown, where they come from. And we are proud of that. You know, we really do support the community there and the economy especially with the warehouse with jobs just all together it's such an encompassing business that just brings so much positivity and representation to our people and not to mention it is the best date (laughs) i mean i'm sure if you've been tried if you haven't tried it you know there still is the end of the crop out there but wait for ramadan they'll be back for ramadan we do crop once a year and they are the most beautiful majul dates that I have personally seen. So um, they're beautiful. And again, it's a very proud thing to be a part of and another component of Ziad that just really makes us us. And I know it's so important to point out that uh, their har- Ziad dates are harvested by Palestinians. They're grown. Uh, employees, they're grown the whole process until it comes here, shipped to the United States and other places. You're not just, by the way, which opens the, reminds me, you're not just an American company anymore in terms of, Uh, providing food do you also ship food outside of the U.S. or is it just in the U.S.? So it's just in the U.S. So Ziad Brands, Ziad Brothers Importing, we are an importer and distributor into the U.S. And even Ziad products themselves are just within the United States. If our products are sold anywhere else in the world, that is, you know, that business is prerogative and how they, Got we it. don't know how, <laughs> you know, but I do know that there is representation in different countries where you can see us and find us. And we love that. But we are a U.S. We are a U.S. company. We import and we distribute within the United States. All right. My guest is Marissa Ziad. She's the marketing director at Ziad Brothers Importing, which is based in Chicagoland, uh, one of the first places in the 60s. And we're talking about, wow, uh, it's almost 60, six decades, 60 years, right? It is. Close to 60 years (laughs) uh, where it was the first place you could get Syrian bread in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And from there, it's grown into this multi-million dollar corporation that does a phenomenal job in distributing Mediterranean food all over the United States. Marissa, thank you so much for joining us to talk to us about this. Thank you. No, I really appreciate it. I love being able to be a part of this. I love being able to be a part of the company and community, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ray. And for our listeners, if they want to get more information, they can go to ziad.com, Z-I-Y-A-D.com online for information and those recipes. Marissa, thank you again. Yes, thank you, Ray. 
ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Ziad Brand, quality products from our family to yours. Ziad Brothers Importing offers the finest quality products, including brands like Sultan, Kraft, Nestle, Hook, Rigo Picon, Dana, and many more. Ask your retailer to carry these fine products because you deserve the very best. For more information, visit our website at www.ziad.com. That's www.ziad.com. Ziad, quality products from our family to yours. هل تلقى أطفالكم أحدث نسخة من لقاح كوفيد-19؟ لقد تم لغاية اليوم تطعيم أكثر من 5.5 مليار شخص بلقاح كوفيد-19 وأثبتت النتائج أن اللقاحات كانت فعالة حيث قام الخبراء حول العالم بإجراء الاختبارات اللازمة ليكون اللقاح آمناً وفعالاً اللقاح لا يحميكم أنتم وعائلتكم فقط بل يحمي المجتمع كله قوموا بواجبكم من خلال التحدث إلى مقدمي الخدمات الصحية أو زيارة michigan.gov/kids/covid-vaccine رسالة من وزارة الصحة والخدمات الإنسانية في ميشيغان. And right now, I'd like to introduce my next guest, Matthew Jabber Stifler. He's the director of the Center for Arab Narratives, a new national research in- institution through Access, the largest Arab American community nonprofit in the country. Matthew is also the research and content manager at the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. And I'm going to add one more caveat, one more point to this. He is the only person I have been able to identify who even has any peripheral or any uh, look at the growth of Arab restaurants in this country. I don't understand why that isn't a bigger topic. But Matthew, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ray. It's great to be back and especially to be talking about not just food. Everybody loves food, but I'm particularly fascinated with the history of Arab-themed and Arab-owned restaurants in the United States. And uh, yeah, it's... you know, there's a few other people who do research on food and even talk about, you know, recipes and cookbooks. And but the idea of like focusing on the role of a restaurant in both the community's history, but also in the terms of our national, just the national engagement with ethnicity. Very few people are are working on that. And I, I want to get into your background a little bit. But before I let that topic go, I mean, the reason it's so important is it's kind of like an Arab media. The ethnic media is a reflection of the health of an ethnic community. If an ethnic community has a robust community media, the ethnic community is robust. And if an ethnic community has a very, and I think even more so, a strong restaurant network of Arab food, for example, um, that's a reflection of the growth of the Arab community and the acceptance and popularity of Arab and Middle Eastern in the United States. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, We're glad to have you back because you were on two years ago with us back in May 2021. It was a very interesting discussion. But tell us where you are today and what you're doing. 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm based in Dearborn. I work for the Arab American Museum. I work for the Center for Arab Narratives, all under the umbrella of access, as you said uh, in my introduction. And my goal is I facilitate research on the Arab community. Um, so people for, you know, university professors, doctors, researchers from all over the globe really want to do, want to include Arab and Arab Americans in their research. And so they come to my institution and we help them find the data, we help connect them with people for focus groups or surveys. And then what's really in intriguing, and it's the work I'm, I'm really passionate about, is we take that research and we take it out of the realm of academia and the academic journals and we put it into plain language and we put it into infographics and we share it back to the community to say, hey, look, all this research is happening about you, but you never read. Why would you? You know, it's in these academic journals. So here's this, here's this important stuff that you're helping further, uh, you know, science and, and, and inquiry. Yeah. I mean, to me, you know, obviously I've been writing about uh, Arab American topics since the seventies when I first got into journalism and there were only a couple Arab restaurants and I, later on uh, in the interview, we'll be talking with Marissa Ziad, who is of Ziad brothers mm -hmm. importing one of the largest distributors of Middle Eastern food. But I remember when her their family store first started in 1966, and it was the only place in Chicago you could get Syrian pita bread. There were maybe a couple restaurants all concentrated within a block of each other. And that never occurred to me that that was a reflection of where the community was. Now we're everywhere, I think, aren't we? Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, you know, early on, let's say late 1800s, early 1900s, Wherever there was a concentration of Arabic speaking folks, there was at least one cafe, coffee house, restaurant. And yeah, you knew where the you knew where the community was concentrated because why would you put a place that serves Arab food in an area where there's no Arabs that are going to come eat? Because this is this is back, you know, the early 1900s is before the general American palate was interested in ethnic food and right. exploring different food options. So if you had an Arab restaurant, it was it was to serve the community. Right. And so, yeah, some of the first businesses that that Arab immigrants opened, besides their dry goods stores and things like that, were cafes and restaurants to serve the community. Yeah, it was the only place you'd go. I remember my mother uh, taking us after Ziad Brothers, the uh, Syrian bakery, which is what it was called back in 1966, uh, taking us to this building where a woman was running a restaurant uh, on in her apartment. <laughs> and she would make stuffed grape leaves and you would come and she actually had six tables in her front room and you could actually eat looking out the window. And there was a big demand for that because even though my parents, obviously Arabs, I think the problem with uh, a challenge for Arab restaurants is every Arab family loves to cook. So why would they go to a restaurant? Why is that? Is it because we're now getting away from you know, my mother was culturally more Arab than I am, I think. I'm more modern. I cook, but not as much as she did. The only way I'm going to get food is to go out to an Arab restaurant. Yeah, part of it is is, is this economic stream. So the idea of, like I said, in the early 1900s, Arab restaurants served the Arab community. But then they realized, well, we can make more money if we serve everybody. And so they started marketing the kinds of foods they had in different ways. You know, they didn't call it Arab food. They called it Mediterranean right. or they called it Middle Eastern or they called it Lebanese. And it, it was it made it more palatable to the general public. 
And then what happened in the 50s and 60s is it became fashionable in America to sample ethnic cuisine. If you think of like the mall food court, where there's like a small restaurant from every kind of nationality, Arabs were really in the mix in there and making sure that that they had restaurants that that, that related to that. Um, it's still happening. I think you see it in every community, but because the communities, Arab communities aren't as concentrated around churches and mosques and things like they used to be, they're much more spread out, except in certain places in the, in the country. Um, you now find Arab restaurants just randomly. There might right. not be an Arab community at all. It might just be one Arab family in a town, but they opened a restaurant because they knew that nobody else could serve that food in the way that they could. And so they're bringing their culture to the general public while also, you know, making some good money, hopefully. Is the Middle East an Arab, I love to call it Arab. I, I don't like the census calling me Mina because they don't include the word Arab in the thing. I want to be Arab, I, you know, so I'm going to call it Arab restaurants. But of course, we're talking about Middle Eastern and Mediterranean restaurants. But um, is the is there, are we seeing a growth? Have we seen a growth or are we seeing a growth in Arab restaurants, Middle Eastern restaurants in the United States? Or is it just, you know, haphazard and, you know, just rolling along steadily? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And as you, you know, you and I were talking about, there's no data on this. Yeah. Nobody's tracking the number of, first of all, what category would it be? You know, Arab, right. Mina, Middle Eastern, Mediterranean, right. everybody has their own way of explaining the cuisine. But yeah, so nobody's tracking how many of those restaurants exist in each city. You would have to do, you'd have to go to the phone books, if they even exist anymore, of each city and look up how many restaurants there are. But I can tell you that food entrepreneurship is huge, right? I mean, this idea of like foodies and exploring different food has gotten so big in the last 20 years, it's just ubiquitous. But here, like in Dearborn, for instance, which has a massive Arab population, most of the restaurants are owned by Arabs, but they don't serve Arab food. They serve Vietnamese food or barbecue or French food or because there's still this idea of like food entrepreneurship is a great way to make money. Uh, but, you know, the young kids don't want to serve shawarma. They want to serve, you know, pizza and hamburgers and barbecue ribs. And uh, right now, Nashville hot chicken is like the, the cool thing in Dearborn lot of hot chicken places so yeah there's still a lot of arabs involved in food entrepreneurship but it's kind of evolved from just the the middle eastern food to to broader offerings what, what is a what is the presence of a restaurant symbolize i mean you know i mean for example even like with the arab museum i mean they've done a lot i remember when it opened i i think it was i'm gonna guess I, maybe 24, 2004, did the museum open? I can't so remember close. the exact date. 2005. So 2005, close. all right. I, <laughs> I think I went out there to do uh, a feature story for Aramco Magazine at the time. Um, yeah. But you guys have captured vignettes and images and uh, slices of life of the Arab community. Is there a presence of, you know, like Arab restaurants and Arab food? Oh, so many. In fact, uh, that's the number one question we get from our visitors, especially out of town visitors is, where should I go for lunch or where should I go for dinner? And we pull out a list and we're like, look, we can't recommend one place because there's like, honestly, in the city of Dearborn alone, there's over 100 Arab food places between the bakeries, the cafes, the restaurants, the grocery stores. 
So we can't say here's the one or two places. We say here's, it depends what you're looking for. Are you looking for Iraqi cuisine? Are you looking for Syrian, Lebanese, Yemeni? What do you, what do you want to eat? And then we break it down from there. But, you know, that, like you mentioned earlier, as you asked, what does that symbolize? Well, it symbolizes a thriving community. If you can have that many restaurants that not only serve, serve the Arab folks, but serve anybody and are right. actually marketed towards the non-Arab folks just as much as the community, it shows that you have enough capital as a community to, to purchase the buildings and run the, run the restaurants and that there's enough people coming to visit your community. So compare that to like a small town in Iowa where maybe there's a hundred Arabs in the whole city, but maybe there's two Arab restaurants. Again, what that shows is that there's enough interest from the broader non-Arab community in Arab food to support those kinds of establishments. So I think it says that the idea of eating Arab food has become more acceptable than it was 20, 30 years ago, for sure. Yeah. And just an FYI, I, uh, Last week or the week before, I did an interview with a uh, legislator, from, an Arab-American legislator, first Arab elected to the Iowa uh, House. And he said that there, uh, there's a huge population of Arabs in Iowa. I said, you're kidding me. I didn't know that. I said, well, what, are they keeping them a secret or something? So he, <laughs> taught, he said the first mosque was built there in the whole yeah. country, North America. And they have an Orthodox uh, Arab church there also. So... Um, obviously with restaurants, it, I'm going to assume it has to be a progression. So you start with food, people start liking food. Mm -hmm. Well, if I had to ask you, what would be the first food that you think people really fell in love with in the Arab community? And you're not as old as I am, but I may go back further. But what do you think is the one thing that people before got it was like the entree food, the one that gets you into Arab food. Yeah. And maybe what is, in your opinion, what do you think is the most popular today? I think the most ubiquitous is hummus. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because, A, it's cheap to make and easy to serve. And Americans love a good dip, right? We love a good dip. But, um, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, if you wanted to buy tahine or if you wanted to buy prepared hummus, you had to go to a specialty food store you know, if you were lucky. Now yeah. you walk into any convenience store or supermarket, there's 35 different kinds of hummus, right? It shows you that it's kind of transitioned to be sort of outside of the realm of ethnic food. It's now just food to most people. They don't even think about it as being ethnic food when they buy it. Uh, but that was, yeah, that was a novelty back, you know, back in the day, you had to have a certain sort of cultural cachet to be like, ooh, I've tried hummus. Have you tried hummus? And then I think the things that go well with that are like the kebabs, and the shawarma because you know it's again it's easy food to serve you can get it on a in a on a street corner you can get it in a cafe so people that know arab food know those kinds of foods but they've probably never had mensaf they've probably you right. know rarely had like mjadra or something a little bit more that they serve in the home and not in the restaurant and so yeah there's different kinds of experiences but all of it shows that at the same time in the U.S. when Arabs are always seen as like potentially a threat or right. are they even American, you know, that's all those conversations are happening at the same time that Arab food is becoming more popular as a way for the general public to learn something, something, you know, they're not going to come out of there being like, I love all Arabs, but they're going to learn a little bit of something about the community. And I think that's a good place to start. 
I, I remember I was in the movie when uh, War of the Worlds came out with Tom Cruise. And there's a scene where he's in the front room with his daughter. And she says, here's the food. He had told her, go order some food. And she hands him some food and he eats it. He goes, Ooh, what the heck is this? And he goes, that's hummus. You told me to, to go out. And she said, and he says, I told you to buy food. So, and I, and I yelled at the screen. I said, Hey, yeah, hummus right. is good. Right. In the middle of this theater, I'm going, okay, I'll be quiet. Now contrast that with uh, the, the Avengers movie from like 10 years ago. That was really huge. And the last scene in the movie after the big battle, Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr. is laying on the ground and everyone thinks he's dead. They come over and he wakes up and he says, I want to get some shawarma. Right. And wow. they end the movie. They're all sitting around eating shawarma. And so like, yeah, contrast that with the way that Arab food can can be presented in movies as either, yeah, something disgusting and foreign or something that's, you know, fun. And, you know, again, a certain amount of cachet, like, oh, you've never had shawarma. Oh, you're not very cultured then. I remember growing up, uh, we would get gyros and I'd go, mm -hmm. okay, gyros. But I tell everybody, we call it shawarma. It's the same thing. And yeah. I think gyros was actually taken from the Arabs. I don't know. But nobody would believe me because the Greeks got here first. <laughs> they got their food out there first. They sold it as, you know, gyros. And everybody understands it as gyros. Yeah, and there's a, that's the one Arab food that I think has a challenge trying to convince people that uh, uh, shawarma is gyros, basically. So go we, eat yeah. it. We I used think to it call tastes them, better. Uh, we called them pita boats, right? Because you would take yes. the pita and open it up and stuff it with the salad and the meat. And, uh, you know, the church, the Arab church I grew up in in Pennsylvania, we used to sell them as pita boats in the 80s. And, uh, yeah, it was just it was just a yarrow. And and uh, I was thinking of the factors that was that drove a lot of the rise, because I really think there were a number of factors that played a role. And I think we should take notes on this show, get the. Arab Museum to do a research study on the growth of Arab restaurants because I oh, think I somebody should do it. I I I mean I have so I, there's a book called The Fortune Cookie Chronicles where it's a, it's a it's it's not like academic research it's more of like popular research and it's somebody that traced the the history and popularity of Chinese food in the United States. Wow. And we could totally do something oh my like gosh. that. That would be phenomenal. And I, I would love if somebody wants to fund me to take a year off work to just yes. travel the country, well, that's, go to different restaurants. Like, yeah, that's when a community has made it. When yep. somebody says, hey, I got uh, two hundred thousand dollars. Go waste your time for a year and figure out where did the first Arab food pop up? Yeah, and then you trace know, but, that evolution to what we have now, because it's a fascinating story. Yeah. And that does show. uh uh, what would you call it? The uh, growth of the Arab community, the maturity of the Arab mm -hmm. community, the sophistication of the Arab community, the restaurant and the food growth reflects our growth population wise. But I think some of the factors and you tell me what you think or if I'm missing a factor. One factor was in the 90s, this uh, war in Iraq. A lot of our American soldiers went to Iraq, were exposed to hummus and falafel mm -hmm. in a way they never were enjoyed it and i know uh veteran i'm a veteran myself but i know a lot of veterans who come back from the middle east and they call me and say hey can we go to an arab restaurant i really love that food so i think that was always one factor the other factor is the uh i think the health factor we hear about the mediterranean diet mm -hmm. it's one of the healthiest diets out there i don't know if they would have called it the mediterranean diet if arab food didn't start growing 
I don't know. Yeah, because people had to have been exposed to the cuisine. And I, I, I always make an argument about the Mediterranean diet. I say, yes, the, the Mediterranean diet or Arab food as it's eaten in the Arab world is quite healthy. Arab food as, as it's eaten in the United States is not because they've adapted to the American sort of portion size. Right. It's very meat forward. Um, so I always get in arguments with people and I'm like, theoretically, it's a very healthy diet. So the Mediterranean but... diet you're saying is if you follow it the way it should be followed, it's a great diet. Yeah. But the U.S. and it's true. I mean, we have a weight problem in the U- U.S. Oh, we yeah. eat too much. Um, and now obesity has been adjusted down where it's almost acceptable a little bit. It's like, hey, that's the way it is, but it is a health problem. But I always thought that, uh, you know, the olive oil, uh, hummus, um, these are always very healthy olives, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, all those things. And of course, uh, you know, you have the, you know, the salads, tabbouleh salad, it's just phenomenal. Yeah, and and everything you just mentioned is meat-free. Because meat, you know, for most cuisines was a luxury, a luxury, you know, now you go to an Arab restaurant, you say, I'll have the kebab and it's a plate of rice with like seven kebabs on top. Right. Not a vegetable to be seen. And that's not how folks would have eaten in many, most Arab countries. It would have been the things from the garden, the things from the field. Um, Yeah, very much uh, meat would have been an accent if it was there at all. So you're basically saying that, uh, the growth of Arab restaurants and the popularity of Arab food is catering to the economics. If you see somebody wanting thick, rich food with lots of meat, and that's what they want, you're going to give it to them because you're going to make more money. You're going to yeah, get away exactly. from the, the basic Arab menu. The rest, so you, uh, researchers make a distinction between restaurant food and home food. And most of the food you eat in an Arab restaurant is not the food that those folks are eating at home. Like, for instance, very few restaurants will serve like kusameshi, right? right? Something I grew up eating, but I've never been to a restaurant that had that on the menu because that's that's home food, not restaurant food. And, you know, most Americans, they might, you know, now nowadays people are adventurous. And but, yeah, they just want the the meat, the hummus, the rice, the bread. And, uh, you know, because that's what's been selling for 50, 60 years. And for those few Americans who listen to us, kusha, kusha uh, mashi is a stuffed zucchini with rice with a little bit of diced uh, spice, but a little bit of diced lamb inside it. You don't go too heavy. That's one of my favorite dishes besides grape leaves, stuffed grape leaves. Same thing, oh, yeah. a little bit of lamb. You don't have to have a lot. Um, and it's just phenomenal. Yeah, because most most Arab foods are actually, you know, poor folk foods because you take a little bit of meat that you have. And you find ways by adding in tomato, onion, rice, things that are quite cheap. You can stretch that little bit of meat into multiple days worth of food. And so, yeah, that's why grape leaves. I mean, grape leaves, you just pick them off the side of the road. You know, it's not going to cost you anything. That's what we did. Zucchini grows. I mean, everyone who's ever planted zucchini knows how quickly that stuff comes up. Yeah. And and, uh, I I think it's phenomenal. So the bottom line is the Middle East restaurants are growing and it's a healthy growth in the United States. Mm-hmm. We we don't see a huge surge or anything happening, but it seems like a steady growth. I uh, wish it's a was... constant, constant for the last, you know, according to the research I've done, like the last hundred and twenty some years, just an increase, an increase, and in a sort of like you said, a steady, it's a steady presence in in all small cities, big cities, you know, rural towns, even. 
And you don't know, I mean, there's no data on how many restaurants there are, right? No. There should be, but we don't have. There should be. And I think, uh, you know, if if you're, uh, like I said, you want to go Google every major city and Google every Arab restaurant and count them up. I mean, you might get some kind of data, but again, here's, you know, what's really interesting. We didn't talk about this. I know we're almost out of time is there are Arab restaurants that serve Arab food. There are Arab owned restaurants that might serve some Arab food, but really they're just an American diner or, you know, you know, like uh, when I was growing up in Pennsylvania, all the Lebanese folks owned bars and taverns and they served, you know, cheeseburgers and that right. kind of stuff. They didn't like, serve any Arab food on the menu. Like the Irish. And so, yeah, would you count those as an Arab restaurant or not? And so we'd have to figure out. Yeah, me too. If but... you're selling Arab food at a restaurant, even if it's just a small portion of your menu, I'd say that, listen, the growth of Arab food being sold at restaurants. I'm just disappointed that uh, even our I reached out to many uh, Arab chambers. Mm. You think that they would know that, but none of them know it. Nobody wants to talk about it because they don't. People seem to be focused in our community on the economics even more than they are on the culture and, uh, you know, our growth. And I I think more people, you know, should do that. And uh, maybe we can get the uh, uh, Arab American uh, National Museum to set up like a grant for you to do some of this research, because I honestly think it would be a great book. Uh, yeah. We need something to document who we are. And our, I think our food distinguishes us as much as our religions, as much as our culture, um, and as much as our politics. 100%. And not only does our food distinguish us, food is the primary way that Arabs in the U.S. connect to their own culture. You know, not a lot of us speak Arabic. Not a lot of us travel back and forth between the Arab world. But we all know the food. And you you put something together around food, you'll bring everybody together, and uh, I think that's a really important role. Yeah, and I and I think it's uh, I think it's very important. Uh, uh, it's one way. It's the most loved aspect of the Arab world, the food. So if that's what people like, and you got to open the door to their minds about politics or whatever issue, food is the way to start. Oh, Maybe yeah. humor too, but food. Food is the way to do it. All right. Listen, I want to thank our guest, Matthew Jabber Stifler, the director of the Center for Arab Narratives, a new national research institution through Access, the largest Arab American community nonprofit in the country. Matthew is also the research content manager at Arab American National Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. I hope we can kind of uh, poke the uh, museum into saying, you know, we should do something on that. I would love to see it. Um, anyway, Matthew, thank you for joining us. I so appreciate it. Thank you, Ray. Thanks for having me again. Arabnews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at Arabnews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. Arabnews.com, news that matters to you. 
At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. شوية نشرب قهوة في حتة بعيدة عزمني على نكتة جديدة وخلي حساب الضحك علي يا ما نفسي عيش انسان قلبه على كفه كل اللي بردانين في كفوفه يتدفوا حمزة نمرة يجدو بأحلى الألحان في أمريكا تغير يا ما عن زمان قفل على قلبك البيبان حبيت وفرقت كم مكان عيش جواك حمزة نمرة وجولة غنائية يبدأها يوم 8 سبتمبر في واشنطن العاصمة و9 سبتمبر في ديربورن ميشيغان وآخر حفلاته يحييها في شيكاغو بولاية ألينوي 10 سبتمبر وسيتم تخصيص العائدات بالكامل لإرسال مساعدات إنسانية إلى سوريا واليمن والسودان عامل قاسي وجوايا مفيش أسوة ماليش غير أسوتي عزوة بتدوا الحق للأقوى وبتيجوا تملع الطيب وتدعو منظمة الحياة للإغاثة والتنمية Life for Relief and Development جمهور الحفلات لزيارة الجناح المخصص لها بموقع كل حفل للتعرف على مشاريعها التنموية والإغاثية والتي تسهم في تقديم المساعدات للآلاف من المحتاجين حول العالم ولمعرفة المزيد عن أنشطة منظمة الحياة زوروا موقعهم على lifeusa.org ولمزيد من المعلومات حول الحجوزات وأماكن الحفلات زوروا الموقع الخاص بالحجز على www.rugvirtue.com قولي عاوز يجاوبني وروح لحالك لتعبني مرة واحدة سيبني أمشي وادوس على الماضي القليل Are your hands feeling numb? Do you feel pain opening up a jar, turning a key? Are you noticing that your elbow and your shoulder are becoming stiff? Or were you recently injured in your arm? Hello, I'm Dr. Albajit Katranji, and at the Katranji Hand Center, which just recently opened down the street from the Somerset Mall, we can provide you with the latest in hand, wrist, elbow, and shoulder care. Visit us at www.katranjihandcenter.com to learn the latest techniques that we have to offer you, and I look forward to taking care of you. Visit us in Troy at 1565 West Big Beaver Road, Building F, or call Katranji Hand Center for an appointment at 248-869-4263. That's 248-869-4263. You've been listening to the Ray Hanania Radio Show, brought to you by 
the U.S. Arab Radio Network, and sponsored by Arab News. Season 3, Episode 17, August 23, 2023, on the growth of Mediterranean and Arab food and Arab and Mediterranean restaurants in the United States. You can listen to this podcast and all of our past radio shows on podcast by visiting Arab News Newspaper, the voice of a changing region at ArabNews.com. There are so many great podcasts there you should check out, including The Maiman Show with host Hussein El Maiman and Frankly Speaking with host Katie Jensen. Check them all out. They're great. And you can get more information on myself by visiting my personal website hub at hananiah.com and also on Arab American Journalism at naaja-us.com, naja-us.com. I look forward to joining you next week when we have more interviews and great guests here at the Ray Hanania Radio Show on the U.S. Arab Radio Network at arabradio.us, sponsored by Arab News the voice of a changing region at ArabNews.com. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you and talk to you next week on our show, the Ray Hanania Radio Show. Thank you.